tonight on Arena. Alex Murphy of the Young Offenders on performing with the RTE Concert Orchestra and Napoleon, The Eternal Daughter and My Father's Secrets are the movies up for review. Five one double five one is the text. You can tweet the programme at RTE Arena. On tonight's movie reviews, a controversial emperor, a complex mother and daughter and a calamity of inherited trauma. Uh, Ridley Scott suffice to say that the truly prolific filmmaker is back with the epic he has been trying to make for decades. Napoleon reuniting his gladiator star and now Oscar winner Joaquin Phoenix. Joanna Hogg is also back. This time it's in a film called The Eternal Daughter. She's also reunited uh, with an Oscar winner, Tilda Swinton, who plays a dual mother-daughter role in this twisty mystery set in a creepy Scottish hotel. And My Father's Secrets is an animated feature with a story of a family coming to terms with the Holocaust experience of their father, Dee Malumbi. Dave Hanratty with me in studio now and they have both been to the cinema. Let's start with the big release of the week, Ridley Scott's Napoleon, which to say the very least is annoying some historians. I think annoying all historians is possibly probably safe to say. But uh, historians are one thing, cinema goers maybe a totally different ball game. Uh, Dave, Hantry, uh, Dave Hanratty and Dave Milumbi, I did say that the two of them are with me in studio. I suppose, um, Dave, to start with you, there must have been something that happened uh, on the set of Gladiator that Ridley Scott said, my Napoleon is over there, it's Joaquin Phoenix and I want him to play that role. Do you think that the, the idea was planted in Scott's head as far back as then? Wow, I didn't expect to try and psychoanalyse Ridley Scott to kick this one off. That that uh, he wouldn't want me to do that, but he 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 doesn't suffer fools gladly, as we know. Mm. Uh, it's a great question. He has referred to Joaquin Phoenix as uh, I believe the quote is the most special and thoughtful actor I've ever worked with. And mm. as you said at the top of this, we're talking about eighty-five-year-old Ridley Scott, one of the most prolific directors yeah. ever. Now he didn't get into directing features until his forties, so he really kind of made up for lost time because he's put he puts out a film every couple of years. Uh, he's worked with the greats. He's worked with pretty much everybody. So for Walking Things to get that kind of bestowing, glowing mm. review is, is mm. a hell of a thing. Could he possibly have known back then when he was playing Commodus and is there any of Commodus in Napoleon? Kind of. Walking Phoenix excels at being kind of twisted and, you know, quietly though. You know, I, mean, I, th- yeah. I think it's, this one is a bit more muted, I would say, but there's also a strange vein of humour running through his Napoleon Bonaparte. So it's maybe not what everyone's expecting. Yeah, and, and I suppose that description uh, of, of Scott's, of Joaquin Phoenix has, you know, been, been rather special. If I'm paraphrasing, as Dave put it there, he's mm-hmm. he's right when he says that Joaquin Phoenix is an extraordinary actor. Is he an extraordinary Napoleon, D? Um, I don't think that he is. But to be honest with you, I don't think that that's so much down to Joaquin Phoenix's performances here as it is to the writing. So uh, the script in this case is by a man called David Scarpa. Now, he would have written All the Money in the World, which people might remember. Well, it's probably most famous Mm. for replacing Kevin Spacey with Christopher Plummer in kind of the 11th hour. But anyone who watched that film, um, it was it was a strange kind of script. It was almost like kind of soap like and very like heightened emotions and stuff 
stuff like this. Um, so whether it kind of worked completely as a script, I suppose, is arguable. And then the other kind of project he'd be best known for is The Day the Earth Stood Still, which is kind of was kind of a big flop and everything like that. So I'm not sure that the script really worked for me anyway when it came to the characterization of Napoleon himself. Uh, for me, I find the character very inconsistent. I found him perplexing. I found him vague. Um, he was strange because he was always very stoic and self-assured whenever he was on the battlefield. And I'm sure that that was intentionally done. But whenever he's away from that, and even in relation to his, um, you know, relationship with Josephine, there are some points where he's like very manic and shouting mm. at everyone. There were some points where, you know, he's very impassioned. And then there were some points where he was like almost acting like a child, like, you know, why does he get horses and I don't get horses at some point? So I didn't really understand, to be honest, completely what they were going for with him as a character. And I, uh, for me anyway, Napoleon, if you look at it as a character study, I think that the film kind of failed in that regard because you couldn't really describe who Napoleon is after seeing this film. And that's what you want to do. Napoleon is a brilliantly complex character who goes from being the great world leader to being the great dictator in, in some ways. And you, you want to get inside the mind of the of the man who can make that kind of journey. Let's have a listen to a clip um, from the film Napoleon. And this is where he's crowning himself emperor. You'll hear what is quite definitely, a, sounds to me anyway, like an Italian uh, prelate, I think it's a, a cardinal in fact here, isn't it, that's, that's crowning, or that's involved in the ceremony. It's Napoleon himself who is doing the crowning. May God affirm you on his throne and Christ give you to rule with him in his eternal kingdom. I found the crown of France in the gutter. I picked it up with the tip of my sword and cleaned it and placed it atop my own head. The most glorious, the most august Napoleon Emperor of the French is crowned and enthroned. Long live the Emperor! Long live the Emperor! Obviously, the epic scale there of the coronation of uh, uh, Napoleon being crowned emperor and Pius VII, in fact, it was the Pope who was who was doing the, the honours there, doing the, the ceremonials. But you can't ignore that, you know, Joaquin Phoenix is using what I'm guessing is his own accent. Certainly, it's an American accent. Vanessa Kirby as Josephine is quite clipped and British and in an episode of The Crown in some in some parts of the film. Yeah, everyone's using their own voice, which is kind of weirdly tonally askew. And I think even listening to that clip there, like I, I just thought on the spot that maybe this would have worked better as a stage play on the radio or something because you get all the pomp and circumstance, mm. but everything is very dead in this film from the way it looks to the way it moves and the way it's been cut apart. I mean... I know it's a cardinal sin for critics to ever get into the idea of, well, let's talk about what this film isn't versus what it is. But I think the fact that Ridley Scott has been on that press tour, which has been making lots of headlines, as we've as we've alluded to, yeah. but he said front and center, uh, I have a four hour version of this that's better. So this is 158 minutes. 
and it's truncated. Like it's very scenes cut off really abruptly. Um, I completely agree with what Dee was saying about. I didn't get a sense of his character. And in 158 minutes to not to walk away from this, and I said to my friend, I was like, I don't feel like I really learned anything about Napoleon. That's wild, and that to me is a huge failure. And as for the performances, yes, Walking Phoenix is Walking Phoenix. He's one of the greats. We all enjoy his mm. presence, but in this one, he's just so kind of flat at times, and even well, mumbles his kind of dialogue. What about the chemistry then between him and Josephine? Because obviously Napoleon and Josephine, one of the great love affairs of of history and of literature and of all kinds of areas of life. Uh, Vanessa Kirby as Josephine here. What's the chemistry like there, Dee? I thought that they actually shared a really great on-screen chemistry and some of the moments of the, this movie that I um, enjoyed more so were probably mm. some of the battle scenes, although again, there were some that were working really well and some that just felt quite flat. But I really enjoyed actually the way that the relationship between Napoleon and uh, Josephine, who was kind of the long, um, long lasting love of his life, uh, was depicted. I thought that Joaquin Phoenix and Vanessa Kirby shared great on-screen chemistry. I thought that they were always kind of keeping you guessing as to those like ships of power and whether, you know, they were in love Mm. or not. And then watching the relationship eventually start to break down and unravel, I really found quite, you know, heartbreaking and devastating. Uh, Vanessa Kirby really impressed me, I have to say. She brought this sense of enigma to Josephine, she was seductive she was feisty and I wouldn't be surprised if after this she kind of ends up getting quite a bit of awards attention now I do think that when it comes to the actual win that she's going to end up li- losing out to Killers of the Flower Moons um, Lily Gladstone because she's completely yeah. like swept the field in regards to that but she'll definitely get some nominations All right. Okay and did you find similarly in the in the relationship between the two of them did you find that chemistry there Dave? I thought it was non-existent to be honest That's with you good to hear I, that yeah. there's a difference of opinion <laughs> I thought it was eyes cold I was like why are these people attracted to each other and Vanessa Kirby I would agree does a terrific performance she's a great actress however uh, again the writing it's not there I don't know why she does what she does I don't know why she has the affairs that she has I don't know what her connection to I mean like you're, you're told at length this film's strange to tell you that these people are like these very strange lovers but they must be together yeah. I didn't walk away from yeah. feeling that at all um, and some maybe worthwhile uh, cameos we could mention Catherine Walker uh, Irish actor as opens proceedings as Marianne Antoinette on her way bravely to the guillotine. She doesn't um, last very long, as no, I can imagine. And, and, and <laughs> Sinead Cusack is there as Napoleon's mother as well. And Rupert Everett is Rupert Everett is in there as, of course, as Wellington, who's eventually victorious as Waterloo. Did other performances work for you? Or again, are you, the two of you seem to be coming back to the writing all the time, Dee? Uh, yeah, there weren't really any standout performances for me. I mean, to be honest, like most of the film was kind of centred on like Napoleon and Josephine and there were kind of characters that were coming mm. in and out. But again, it's it's kind of what Dave was touching on there, that there were like these time jumps and these characters coming in and out and you never could fully understand the motivation. And as well, in terms of an actual flow of narrative, it was just too stoppy and starty. I found the pacing was all over the place and I kind of alluded to um, some of the battle scenes there previously one of the scenes that really um, stood out for me as one that was at least particularly enjoyable was I think it was set in Austria if I remember but it's the snowy battle scene now it was very reminiscent of right. the first act of Gladiator which people probably remember but um, even the Waterloo scene which is meant to be the big finale was quite a letdown so that was disappointing right, so Disappointment all around but if you're talking about this narrative breakup maybe this broken up narrative maybe you need to see the four hour version <laughs> 
Sounds uh, like a threat at this yeah, stage, you know? I, I don't see either of you rushing out to do that. Stars from you, Dave, overall. I, I left the cinema and it was a three. I wrote my notes, it's a two and a half. And, and I will say, if I may, just another big problem I have with Ridley Scott is how his films have come to look. He works with a, a director of photography called Darius Wolski for the last decade or so. And there's just this grayscale, washed out sheen. It looks cheap and money has been spent. He spent $200 mm. million of Apple's money and I thought it looked pretty cheap and not great. So uh, I even think of a recent film like The Last Jewel where that worked. I think that's a much better film, a very underrated one from him. Ridley Scott's a very erratic director. This didn't work for me. It's two and a half. Two and a half. And I think it sounds like it could be two before you get out of the studio. What are you saying, Dee? I'm slightly less harsh. I'm going to give this uh, three out of five stars because there were some moments in it I really liked some performances I would have mentioned there. I I personally found the production design very impressive. Um, I love the cinematography from Ridley Scott regular Darius Wolski. He previously worked on The Martian and Prometheus. So I thought it looked great, but it was quite long and it was kind of dull in parts, if I'm honest. Quite long, kind of dull. (laughs) Put on the poster. Yeah, they'll be quoting that one for sure. Let us move on. That's Napoleon. Uh, Let's move on then to the eternal daughter. Treat for fans of Tilda Swinton as she takes on a double role uh, in this film from Joanna Hogg, whose most recent films, The Souvenir Parts 1 and 2, were hits with the critics and incidentally starred Tilda Swinton's own daughter, Honor Swinton Barn, and Tilda Swinton herself was in was in the, the part two at any rate, for, for sure. You are among that legion of fans, I think it's safe to say, Dave Hanratty, of Tilda Swinton's. I think she might be the greatest living actor. I mean, it certainly is my, my go-to for no matter what the role is. No matter who it is, I don't care, man, woman, anything. Cast Tilda Swinton. If you can put Tilda Swinton in your film, do it. And in this case, Joanna Hogg is like, well, I'll just have her twice. Why not? <laughs> she's done the, the multiple role thing before. If you think of um, the reimagining of Suspiria from a few years ago, she yeah. plays three roles in that one, including one at the very end where she's under so many prosthetics and makeup that I think people didn't even realise it was her. Uh, chameleonic, brilliant. I go back to, say, Constantine, that Keanu Reeves comic book movie from 2005 that I love she plays the angel Gabriel it's inspired casting she's brilliant she's brilliant in the killer at the moment is she brilliant in this though that's the question oh he's casting doubt in amongst his absolute adoration of Tilda Swinton Uh, she's playing a mother and daughter let's have a listen to a scene where the two of them both played by her meet to discuss having a little aperitif I got you a nice glass of wine thank you very much Oh, goodness me. Are we early or late? I mean, are we the only people staying here? Have you worked that out yet? I know, I don't know. There was no one here when I arrived. Oh, look at that. Thank you very much. That's very welcome. I'm kind of maybe I'm biased here, but I could hear two very distinct characters in that, and that's you know on radio with no visuals. Uh, how does how did it work for you, uh, Dee? Were you in any doubt as to which was, who was the daughter, who was the mother? How does Tilda manage well, manage that double? <laughs> I mean, makeup helps you along with that, but I mean, she can do no wrong. I just think Tilda Swinton is absolutely fantastic. Even the the movie you mentioned uh, previously there, Dave, The Killer. I didn't particularly mm. like that movie, but when Tilda was there, I was I was enjoying myself. Um, but yeah, Tilda. Swinton absolutely carries this movie and she's perfect and brilliant no matter what role she's given. All I can, could think of watching this film was no notes. She is absolute perfection. Um, but it is worth noting she isn't the only um, uh, actress in this movie. Now, now, at the same time, the whole idea is that her character 
characters, uh, the mother and daughter, they're staying in this eerie, empty hotel, uh, but it's not completely eer- mm. uh, empty at that. Um, there is a hotel receptionist uh, played by this actress called Carly Sophia Davies. And I swear this this girl is definitely up and coming. The whole idea of this character is that she kind of has this attitude problem and she's never particularly nice. She's never particularly helpful and she's just very, very funny. And I think there's a lot of, um, you know, intensity in in this movie and it gets quite dark in places and I think you really need that levity and she just she yeah. just brings it so effortlessly. That actress is worth mentioning and also uh, Joseph Meidel who plays Bill, which is I, I suppose a kind of groundskeeper is kind of the idea of his character and he's this very warm and considerate uh, character um, who's present, I suppose, to counter the general unpleasantness mm. of like the atmosphere in the hotel. Right, OK. Like that. Uh, well, let's listen to a clip um, uh, featuring the aforementioned Carly Sophie Davis as the, the most unhelpful receptionist in the world. We've all come across this character. It might be a hotel reception, it might be a hotel porter, it might be somebody in a shop, it might be somebody who should be helping you to do something in some office. They're not very helpful. I'm wondering if there's any clarity on whether or not we can stay in our room uh, for the for the next few nights. Um, I still don't know about the room. Oh, um, there's no way of expediting that decision, is there? Uh, no, I can try and get back to you later on today, but I can't promise anything. Sooner rather than later would be would be much appreciated. Yeah. Um, also, we don't seem to have a kettle in our room. An okay. electric kettle, please. Yeah, I'll bring one up. And also, I I had a very unsettled night. There was a sound. I'm sure other people have mentioned it to you. A, a banging of some kind. I. Imagine it was a window or... Yeah. I mean, there's no one staying above you. Well, exactly. I, I'm, I'm, I can't imagine anybody would have been staying in a room with that because they wouldn't have been able to sleep at all. Um, it was... I, and I don't know if it was a window, but it felt repetitive and... Yeah, all night. <laughs> That's strange, because nobody else has mentioned anything at all about any noise whatsoever. Really? Yeah. That does surprise me. Yeah. It was uh, pervasive. Uh, oh, well, anyway. Um, I would be very grateful if you could make sure that that doesn't happen again tonight and check all the windows and... Um, all, all the windows? Well, all, all the windows, especially in the rooms that are not occupied because obviously the people who are staying in the rooms will be able to check their own windows. Carly Sophie Davis as the most unhelpful receptionist in the world there. And that's from the film Eternal Daughter. And that was Tilda Swinton daughter in the daughter role there. Is is there a plot here or is it about atmosphere and admiring Tilda Swinton and what she can do? Yeah, I mean, the the construction of this is it's quite intimate by design. And as a matter of fact, this was actually shot a long time ago. Like news kind of emerged during January of 2021, I believe, that Joanna Hogg and Tilda Swinton had reunited to make a secret film during the pandemic lockdown, which also explains why there's very few people in Mm. this film. And also, let's just double up with Tilda Swinton. Um, Is there a plot? Not so much of one. It's about, you know, a filmmaker who wants to make a film about her mother and, you know, tap into the secrets of the past. And, you know, the the idea is that this film will tap into some very real human emotions. And also, like, that moment there plays like a sketch. There is actually a very nice uh, conclusion to that character, the receptionist character. They do something very, very nice with that at the end. But... Yeah, it's more about manners, it's more about performance, it's more Mm. about kind of suggestion of feeling and metaphors. Does it work, Deirdre? Did it work? Or Dee, did it work for you? I thought it really worked. I absolutely adore this film, to be honest with you. Um, The way that it kind of reflected on the power of memory and stories, um, the themes of it, I just find so kind of powerful. Um, The way that it kind of touches on grief as well is very moving. I I find it really interesting as well as 
it was kind of it was a gothic movie and it was a ghost story without being a horror. Now, I've talked on the show before about how I absolutely abhor horror movies. And it's funny, if you go back and watch the trailer for it, they almost cut it as if it's a horror movie. And I kind of wonder if that's almost to like, you know, get in audiences Mm. because like, you know, there are some audiences out there who are who are looking for a horror movie. But that's not really what this this film is about. Um, I just find it really quite beguiling. And there is a mystery to it um, that you're really hooked to and kind of gradually um, unravels into this beautiful kind of um, final solution. Although admittedly, I will say that I did find the ending a bit confusing and I had to look it up afterwards to figure out exactly what happened. But it was just, I actually found it to be quite a beautiful film in the All end. All right, so stars from you, i I'd give it uh, four out of five stars. Yeah, I I found it really quite, quite moving. All right, okay, four out of five. Uh, and as you give me your summary and stars, David, maybe you would answer the question you posed at the top about your your super fandom of Tilda Swinton is she any good in this oh yeah she's great but uh, like you expect that you know I wouldn't say it was remarkable stuff and I mm. didn't I, I found the limitations in terms of the construction of how it was done like you know it's just kind of one shot of Tilda over here another shot of her as the mother you know stitch them together later there's no CGI this is a you know small budget yeah. movie um, it's a three out of five for me I thought it was a bit too minor key I thought it was a film in search of a plot I did appreciate what it was tapping into I do think it's tapping into some genuinely very human things that we all struggle with but in in terms of, you know, it, it is sold as a gothic mystery. It isn't frightening yeah. in the least. And the mystery, I think it's a generous word to call it a mystery. All right, generous. You wanted the horror. Mystery. I wanted the horror and I wanted a mystery. <laughs> yeah, what can okay. I say? So what did you say, Starry Stars? Three out of five. Three out of five. Briefly then and finally, let's talk about My Father's Secrets. Originally a French language animation based on a graphic novel called Second Generation. This is a story confronting the deep wounds left by the Holocaust on Jewish families through generations. Just give us the setup here, Dee. Yeah, so this is... Um, um, an animated feature and two-dimensional traditionally animated, which I always appreciate now in the day where people are using far too many computers in every aspect of life. Uh, but we're essentially following this boy named Michel as he grows up in Belgium and he observes his father as he's mm. coming to terms with the, his trauma um, of his experience uh, surviving the Holocaust. Um, it really is as at its heart a coming-of-age movie um, that's very much told from the perspective of a child. Um, there are some very kind of sweet humor scenes in it. Um, Michelle has a younger brother Charlie and they're very they have this very close relationship. They play together, they uh, tease one another. Um, there's at one point Michelle farts in Charlie's face to wake him up one morning. So there's like a lot of childhood innocence. You have in brothers? It. I, uh, do I? Yeah. I, I have a younger brother who wouldn't dare. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, um, but yeah, but that's kind of happening in tandem with um, uh, these boys and their two sisters as well, kind of observing um, this these psychological difficulties that their father is um, yeah. is going through and not really being able to connect with him. And it is the story of the illustrator here, uh, of the the writer of the original graphic novel, is it? Or uh, yes, yeah, uh, yeah. On, on which this animation is based. It is his story. It's yeah. entirely autobiographical. Yes. And in that regard, it gives you a human touch. And it's interesting to kind of contrast the level of whimsy. And you might say, why include that in a film about the Holocaust? And why why make it animated in the first place? But the filmmakers have said that animation enables us to tackle very heavy and serious issues with a distance. And it's also a good entry point for children. This does feel purpose built for a much younger audience. I will say that as well, because it's tackling issues, of course, of extreme harrowing nature mm. and very difficult and complex and horrible. Um, they don't go incredibly deep on that. It's more about presentation and more about trying to 
give you a sense of human emotion, which it does do quite well. I think that this would work for, like I say, a primary school class or something to show it to them, uh, to try and explain yeah. to someone. And we need to keep having these conversations. We can't forget about this, the worst atrocity in human history. And obviously right now what we're seeing in the world as well, it's very, very timely and relevant in, in, in a very, very sad way. Um, the human nature of it, though, I think does come across quite well. It's essentially about a boy trying to connect with his father and his father wanting to do something with, you know, over here, but not involving him. And that has to come to attention crunch point, which it does. So I think it's an hour and is it 75 minutes, an hour and 15 minutes. So they're packing yeah. quite a lot into an animated movie here. Does it work overall uh, for, for you, Dee? Yeah, I think so. Um, I mentioned the animation there before. I thought that it was really well done. Um, it's it's quite attractive. It's simple and appealing. Um, they have this interesting kind of <coughs> animation within animation uh, going on in the story as well. Uh, Michelle, as a character, is really interested in drawing caricatures and him and his father really bond over them. And he talks about them, giving him, them a shared language. Um, and that's something the film kind of talks about and I suppose is getting a bit meta about as well. It's kind of reflecting on how pictures and images can carry quite a bit of weight, can yeah. carry memory, can carry emotion. Um, and I thought it really accomplished the whole perspective of um, a child really quite uh, powerfully as well. That whole oh. mixture of innocence and naivety stars as well. Stars from UD. I'm going to give it four out of five stars. Um, I would second what Dave was saying there in that it is probably primarily made for uh, a child audience. audience. But I think adults will get a lot from it too. And what are you saying overall, Dave? Uh, it's a three for me because like I say, it is, you know, like like younger audience, etc. Um, but it is worthy, it is important. And I did think it, it stuck the landing that like the last scenes of this I found very powerful and bittersweet and moving. That is My Father's Secret, said the third of our movies this evening. Before that, we spoke about The Eternal Daughter and we started off with Napoleon D. Malumbi and Dave Hanratty, our reviewers on this Thursday evening. Conductor Kensho Wantadabi is a rising star in the classical world, performed at the London Philharmonic Orchestra uh, the uh, and Tokyo Philharmonic Orchestra as well, and has made his debut at the prestigious Metropolitan Opera in New York. This weekend, he will be joining the RTE Concert Orchestra at, at, Orchestra at the National Concert Hall, performing Ravel, Britain and Brahms, with the Young Person's Guide to the Orchestra that will be narrated by none other than Alex Murphy of the Young Offenders, <laughs> and of lots of other things as well. I'm I, sure am, be- I am the young person. That they've gotten in. I don't know how long I can be the young person for, but we'll we'll stick out. So it. you are the young person giving the young person's guide to the orchestra. That's it. Yes. It's the blind leading the blind. Yeah. It's kind of it's big meta then. Yeah, <laughs> it's, I think it's, so. It's how you're, yeah, yeah, it's yeah. how you're looking at this. Listen, first of all, um, good to have you both here. I I was wondering, Alex, when I thought, oh, well, Alex is doing this. Obviously, he he studied, he played in the youth orchestra, and he he's, he's going to say, I love Obviously, the woodwind yeah, section, yeah. or I love the string section, yeah. and we're going to have a great time talking about Britain. No, <laughs> that is not that is not where we're going with this. I have such a little knowledge of music in my head. I only kind of the I played a little bit. I played a few weeks of the accordion when I was younger, uh, but that didn't last too long. And I've been playing guitar for about six years. That's all I have. But uh, I did something with the orchestra a few years ago uh, and I just, I loved it. But I was so naive and knew nothing about it. But just to be surrounded by it, yeah, to be, it asked, to be asked to come back down and do this. Yeah, because I think, wasn't it, wasn't it a poem that you... you yeah, I did a poem and then the orchestra joined in at the end hmm. of the poem to kind of crescendo it. And my mum watches that about once a month. She has it recorded. She watches that more than The Young Offender. She's so, oh, you spoke so well at that, Dave. So, oh, yeah. She'll she have, she she'll have this on. She'll be she'll doing this She'll have two of them now, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> doing this, 
you wouldn't think, um, can't you, about um, composing and helping Britain along here with an accordion variation that you could put into the Young Person's Guide to the Orchestra. Hey, you know, I mean, the, the trend now is that classical music is ever evolving, right? Yeah. So why not add an accordion, yeah, yeah, yeah. Alex Murphy variation? variation yeah, we, we've got uh, a day. The yeah, <laughs> that's plenty of time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, of course, Kenshu knows this, but, you know, you'll put this together and the, the RT Concert Orchestra, I haven't done stuff with them where you can't say, how did they get that amount of work done in a day and a half, two days? It's kind of extraordinary. Mm. But for an actor who, who, well, I suppose in terms of telly, it does happen quite quick. But in terms of theatre, you have a oh, few yeah. weeks to get your yeah, stuff theater, together. Yeah, theatre, you've got a few weeks. TV now, there's things changing in the morning and, you know, you have to stay on top of it. But uh, oh, it's decided then. Yeah, yeah, I'll get the accordion out. Yeah, I can play a C chord. I'm definitely, I was kind of half thinking I might go on Saturday night. Now I'm thinking the accordion variations, I will be there. (laughs) Or what did we hear earlier? Tom Waits' definition of a gentleman is someone who can play the accordion but doesn't. Oh, so you're taking the gentlemanly route, are you? I'm a gentleman. (laughs) (laughs) We might explain, Kencho, what what it is that Benjamin Britten's Young Person's Guide to the Orchestra does, because it is. It does what it says in the tin, really, doesn't it? It it explains how the orchestra works. Yes, and in in a way, you know, this was a piece that was originally uh, intended for TV. It was kind of to underscore a documentary about the orchestra. Mm. So you kind of find that not only does he introduce various instruments, but also families of instruments and how they work together and how they interact with different instruments. So not only do you get to hear the, you know, if the narrator says, now you'll hear the double basses, Mm. you hear the double basses, but then you get to hear a piccolo with a double bass two diametrically opposed instruments and how they interact with each other. So this, this in a way, is uh, more educational in, in Finding how the orchestra fits together, all you know, with the ent- entire ensemble. Yeah, because what what Britain did was he 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 composed. Well, he gave us this one simple tune, and then he moves it around all of the instruments in the orchestra, and you hear them doing their variations. I I particularly like the variation with the percussion in it because you just you well, get to see thing, the right? whole family of well and it's a big family the percussion family oh, yeah. you get to see most of the family not all of them and not many people think percussionists or percussion instruments are tuneful mm. but actually in this uh, in this variation you really hear the melody in the percussion which is quite wild Right, well, let's have a listen to, to a version. Oh, what have I just done with that? Now? <laughs> I was trying to move something here and it's gone somewhere totally. Oh, that's great. Tommy outside has sorted it all out Good for man, me. Tommy. Thank you, Tommy. <laughs> um, uh, so this is this is the percussion variation. So we've heard it go around the strings. We've heard it on the woodwind. We've heard it on the brass. And then you think, how are they going to do that lovely tune on the percussion instruments? And this is how they do it. Barry Humphreys, by the way, Dame Ed Average is, um, is, is narrating here. There is an enormous number of percussion instruments, possums. We can't play them all, but here are the most familiar ones. There we go. <laughs> and we're not going to listen to the whole hogs of putting it together. <laughs> it, 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 you, you I was, was enjoying that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. But uh, what's, what's notable there, and I guess this is what you must be thinking about, Alex. I mean, obviously there we heard Dave Edna as herself doing it, you know, yeah. in her style. Um, I, I did wonder if there might be, is it going to be an Alex Murphy style that we'll narrate here? Or are you tempted <laughs> to have a little bit of Connor in there? I'm going to shave the head and do a pure... Uh, pure cork, uh, yeah. yeah. I think that's that's what that's what we need. <laughs> I think that's what the people want. Yeah. Well, you're you're you're, you're, you're quite violin. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I love that piccolo. Yeah. 
That would work really well. I can't show you. Yeah? Are you okay, I'm all for it. <laughs> I was just telling Alex, I saw the film last, last night. So, so it's, very very fresh, <laughs> it's very fresh in my brain right now. Yeah. So this is great. Yeah, he, he would bring a certain kind a of... A certain kind, je ne sais quoi. <laughs> well, there'd be such a sense of wonder in what, yeah. what he was hearing. Yeah, uh, yeah. For, no, for, I think, yeah, this, these are good ideas. We have a night to sleep on it now, but I think... Yeah, 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 yeah. So have, you haven't actually been in with the orchestra No, tomorrow point, now is when we're, we're all in the room, going to rehearse it for a while. And then... Saturday's the big day. Mm. Is yeah. it daunting though? You know, apart from that. it's, you know, why it's not daunting. It's because I don't really know what to expect. So mm. I'm just, I'm like the 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 audience here. I don't know much about the orchestra. So me doing it and yeah. listening to myself, I'm learning as well. Yeah. So I'm just looking forward to being in the room because, yeah, you're not don't often get to work with a full orchestra. So it's more just exciting than daunting. Well, I'm, I'm really glad to hear that Cantor has watched The Young Avengers. So you watched the film version I of it. I watched the film and now I'm inspired to watch the series. And yeah. I know a certain, you know, lead actor on the series that might get me a, a link I'll to the show. A, little, so. <laughs> a dodgy link. <laughs> yeah, Just send me 20 quid and we'll call it quiz. <laughs> Please don't do that deal on air. <laughs> <laughs> if, you could, if you could keep that for some other time and some other place. Um, but obviously, obviously there's going to be there's going to be a bit of fun with it. That's, yeah, that is that is what it's about. But there are other there are other pieces within tomorrow night's concert as well. Can't I mean, I was struck, but yeah, you have Ravel's Le Tombeau de Cooper on there, which in some ways is a nice companion piece to the Persa or to the Benjamin Britten, because it has different fugues in the way that the Benjamin Britten has and it moves around the different instruments of the orchestra in the same way. See, Sean, I give you a lot of credit because you're actually seeing that per- perhaps a theme in this this mm. performance, this concert, is composers taking uh, themes or works by composers from before in the past and repurposing them for this. Yeah. So Couperin obviously was a composer in the Renaissance and uh, and Ravel is using it more of an homage to this person and also an homage to his friends who were killed in the First World War. And then in the Brahms Symphony, actually, the inspiration behind that, uh, in, uh, behind that piece was that Brahms heard Bach's cantata number 150, which in, in the last movement of this involves this Passacaglia bass line, which is what he used for the finale of the symphony. Right. So in all three pieces, there is an element of looking back and using something from the past. And the other one, is Sophie, I, I chose the, the second movement from the Brahms Symphony Number no. 4 because it's another thing that happens. It, in, in Benjamin Britten took this one tune and he puts it right across the instruments of the orchestra. In this second movement, there's a really simple theme, second movement from the Brahms Symphony Number no. 4. There's a really simple horn theme. It starts out on the horns. But what he does with it after that is is quite astonishing. Let's listen to, to the opening section. So that's just a, a, a little section of the, the opening uh, of the second movement from Brahms' Symphony No. 4, which along with uh, the Benjamin Britten Young Person's Guide to the or- Orchestra and Ravel's Combo de Couperin will be performed by the RT Concert Orchestra with Alex Murphy uh, doing the narration uh, for the uh, the Britten piece. But I, I wanted to play that Brahms piece, Kensho, because it, it shows to me... Um, that sounds, and you said it as we were listening, that sounds really simple. It's just a really 
simple melody which he develops over 11 minutes across the entire orchestra. How difficult is a really simple melody like that? I think the simpler it is, the more difficult it is because all of the details are so important. If it's something that's complex and quite thick in texture, then mm-hmm. you can kind of get away with a few things. But when it's so simple, simple and... Simple but not easy. Exactly. Yeah. And I'm sure there's some correlation with your work as well where it, you just delivering a simple line is maybe the most difficult thing. On paper, thing. it sounds easy. It's like, yeah, I could, I could do that. Yeah. But doing it, I suppose, is a different thing. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And I suppose that is, that's exact correlation with acting. Yeah. You know, the, the more straightforward the line in some ways, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the more difficult it is. Yeah. Anyway, I'm looking forward, Alex, to the accordion variation. Yeah, it's coming. Which is going to be rehearsed before Saturday yes. Night's performance. Oh, better after, unrehearsed. After, yeah. Just, just do it live. Yeah, just get, do it live. I feel it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Definitely going now. The accordion is a very forgiving instrument. <laughs> <laughs> maybe, maybe the audience mightn't be. Anyway, listen, thanks so much to both of you. Thank are you. we going to see any more Young Offenders just before I go? We are, yeah. We, we've shot the last season of months ago so in the new year at some right. point okay so can't you have gone I've got a lot Christmas. of catching up to do a lot of work two to do. Christmas specials oh. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> two Christmas I'll give you a ring in a little bit yeah. listen best of luck to both of you Thank on you Saturday much. tonight if Thank you can you. get the dynamic between the two of you that you have here you're going to be absolutely fine <laughs> conductor Kenshi Watanabe and Young Offenders actor Alex Murphy who will both be in the National Concert Hall this Saturday November the 25th performing the Young Person's Guide to the Orchestra the Ravel the Tombeau de Coperin and the Brahms Symphony Number no. 4 with the RTE Concert Orchestra. As the front man for the 60s pop rock funk band Sly and the Family Stone, a songwriter who created some of the most memorable anthems of the 1960s and 1970s Pete songs like Everyday People and Family Affair and a performer who electrified audiences at Woodstock. Sly Stone's influence on modern music and culture is indisputable. People might well know the music. The man, however, remains something of a mystery. After a rapid rise to superstardom, Sly spent decades in the grips of addiction and his memoir Thank you. Flatename by Be Myself Again. I have no idea what that means. I don't even know if I'm saying it right. I will check in a minute. Moves from Sly's early career as a radio DJ and record producer through the heights of the San Francisco music scene in the late 1960s into the darker side of the 1970s and 1980s Los Angeles. Peter Murphy has been reading Sly Stone's memories with me in studio this evening. Solve the solve the riddle of the title for me first of all. Thank you. I do understand that part of the title. The subtitle. Break it up phonetically into blocks. Thank you for let me be myself again. Ah, thank you very much. After the song from There's a Right Going On from 1971, I think. So that was in that song. Is that what we get in the memoir? Here I am, it's me. Thank you for letting me be myself again. Uh, it's nothing quite so coherent. <laughs> <laughs> That'd be too simple. Uh, actually, there, there is, yeah, there is something in that because it's maybe one of the, the most, I wouldn't say defensive, but less introspective, less self-interrogative and self-navel-gazing memoirs that I've ever read. Uh Sylvester Stewart, his birth name, doesn't spend a lot of time examining his own motivations, going over past mistakes. It's very much, reminded me very much of Charles Mingus's autobiography, Beneath the Underdog, 
bit of Miles Davis is too, where there's a lot of front, a lot of ego and a lot of um, super ego as well. But I mean, there's the whole thing uh, hinges on the voice. Uh, it's not a forensic autobiography. It's not a social history. It doesn't break down. There's a whole lot of stuff left unsaid in this book. Um, is that frustrating? It is frustrating because Sylvester Stewart was a musical genius and Sly and the Family Stone were one of the most extraordinary bands of the 1960s. Just to break it down, he was born in Texas, grew up in California, grew up north of San Francisco, was a musical prodigy, came from one of those families that were just innately musical, grew up in the church. Uh, and quite early on, um, went to music college, had a brilliant music teacher, discovered that he had an incredible natural facility for counterpoint and harmony and melody and counter melody, went quit school, became a DJ. And a DJ back then was not just somebody who spun the records. A DJ in the Wolfman Jack school was a larger than life personality who did a lot of early, what you would call like proto rapping, right. rhyming, like a, an on-air salesman. And then went into record production and songwriting. That school of early 60s musicians who had learned how the business works and how the whole ecosystem works before they ever set foot on a stage. What do you want to listen to first? Um, because when you, you when you describe the kind of the background and the complexity of some of the music and education that was there, dance to the music strikes me. But if we want to get the sense of who who the who he was and who the band were, everyday people does that. Yeah, I mean the beautiful thing about looking through the the, the song selection is there are different styles. They've got like mm. they've got like the live set pieces like I want to take you higher, or dance to the music, which you know if you've ever watched the Woodstock movie or indeed the Summer of Soul movie uh, produced by Questlove, directed by Questlove a couple of years ago, you will see what an absolute rip-roaring live band they were. But the pure pop melody that they got from the Beatles and from Dylan and then mixed it up with James Brown and Soul and stuff, everyday people. Just a little flavour there of everyday people from Sly and the Family Stone. We're speaking about Sly Stone's memoir with Peter Murphy this evening. Um, and, and you get it there, even in, in the simplest, it's a two minute, 19 seconds of a pop song, even ac across the maybe minute and a half or minute or so that we listen to there, Peter. He does so much. Can, can we underestimate the kind of influence that he had on popular music? He was both looking back and looking forward, in the, I would suggest, in that piece. Yeah, so he was taken from Ray Charles. You can hear you mentioned Otis Redding when we were listening. Yeah, You can hear who would have been a contemporary rather than influence, but mm. James Brown certainly. Uh, but he loved melody uh, and he loved the pop charts and he stole from everywhere. So explicitly, there's no prince in the revolution without Sly and the Family Stone, I think it's fair to say. Not just musically. I mean, Prince took from Hendrix and he took from uh, he took from hardcore, like Funkadelic and stuff. But if you look at that amazing 
uh, black, white, male, female dynamic that Prince and the Revolution had. That was the template, which for yeah. a band like Sly and the Family Stone in the late 60s, at the height of racial tension and the height of, of Vietnam and the height of the civil rights movement, was a real statement. And he came under some pressure from the Black Panthers to go exclusively Afro- Afro-American. And he never, he always insisted that music was pansexual and pan-cultural. Does... Does the memoir open up that kind of cultural background or that kind of cultural influence? Was was Sly Stone aware of that? He wants to talk about it in this memoir. He doesn't talk about anything. It's you know a lot of things are mentioned in passing, and you get the sense that the guy was totally conscious of what he was doing, musically and in terms of the impact he was having. And if you look at you know, so who stole the show at? at at Woodstock and who stole the show at the late like Sly and the Family Stone Santana Hendrix mm. they were the acts um, in some ways you know Hendrix also was was uh, had a, a black and a white lineup uh, as did and Santana was like before Bob Marley you know the first non-Afro-American um, he was like South of South American extraction so there's a lot of really interesting musical cross cross-generational stuff going on like here the- yeah, but it, it sounds as if we don't, that's not opened up fully to us. There also is, a, I, I touched on it in the in the introduction, you know, the, the, the problems with addiction and uh, later on in, in life after the after the early successes. Do we get into that very, the more personal side of it here? Yes, uh, it's quite, I mean, his, his trajectory is almost like Brian Wilson. It's like he was so much a genius and could, was such a production recording genius who could play any instrument that that sense of, Isolation, mm. I think, was probably what got to him, and that he could do all the jobs, but the sense of he needed a live band around him. But in his everyday life and his and his recording life, he didn't need a team. So there was a sense of sinking into that solipsism. And and what's amazing about this is how early on the drugs are there. The hard drugs are there too. I mean, they start everybody was smoking weed at the start of it, but the coke was there from 1968, 1969. The coke then became PCP, Angel Dust, which is heavy stuff. Yeah, and and he the, he's he's eighty years old. He got clean during the pandemic. He got clean during the pandemic, and this may be the longest lapse of any major artist. We're talking about maybe thirty or forty years of near obscurity. Of he released records, but really, he unapologetically blew his career 20 times over from late appearances, from no shows, from absolute squandering of wealth, musical talent, mm. resources. I mean, the, 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 the man had a, had a hellhound on his tail. There's a ghostwriter here, Ben Greenman. Do, do, does that mean, I often wonder in these situations, do you get to hear the voice of Sly Stone? Do you get to know the man? I mentioned in the introduction that, you know, we may be aware of the, the influence of the music, but the man himself is still a bit of a mystery. I'd say it's the most invisible ghostwriter I've ever seen. Which is a good thing, I think, isn't it's it? It's a good thing in terms of getting his voice. But the voice is very much full of riddling and obfuscation. It's, uh, you know, he will... Um, he will pass over things or he'll uh, pun, like pun upon pun upon wordplay anything to avoid actually getting into some of the more difficult details as to we never figure out why he became such a drug fiend or why a man with such an ama- <clears throat> with such uh, 
gifts and such privilege blew it all. Um, and But maybe it's just the story of the 70s. The last great Sly in the Stone family record was there's a riot going on, which is, I often think of it as the equivalent of the Rolling Stones' exile on Main Street. You can just smell Nixon and heroin and Vietnam. And is, the book, downer. is the book worth the read for all that obfuscation? If you're, it's for a, sh- a not terribly long book, it's, it's too long. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's, there's quite a lot of it is about nothing in particular except a sort of depressing um, blowing of chances. But the first 150 pages are, are worth, like if you're, look, if you're a fan of this, you it. will read it because there's enough nuggets yeah. to pick up as to why it was so magical. And if nothing else, it will send you back to the records. Peter Murphy speaking to us about the book. Thank you for letting me be myself again. It published by uh, another another difficult one, AUWA Books. In the States and White Rabbit over here. Now, there you go. And Peter Murphy with, and his band Cursed Murphy and The Resistance will be at the Grand Social on Wednesday next, isn't it, Jed? Wednesday the 29th. 29th. Full details there on thegrandsocial.ie. And that is our lot for this Thursday evening. Niall Fitzmaurice and Leah Murphy were the researchers. Ollie Hamilton was broadcast coordinator Harry Buckles was on sand this evening tonight's programme produced by Keshi talk to you tomorrow night once again 7 o'clock here on RTE Radio 1 John Creedon will be with you after the news